You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Right now, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to start with a little, um, little family time at the very beginning. Of, of, of this service. So I'm going to do announcements, but the way I'm going to do the announcements is going to be a little bit more about vision and why we're doing the things that we're doing. And then uh, I'll, I'll go through the announcements, but the way I want to go through the announcements is a little bit more vision. And then we'll conclude, and we'll pray, then we'll conclude the book of Genesis. Does that sound like a plan? Okay, first, this event is so important. This is something that we've been praying for and planning for a very long time. It's called Serve the City, it's, this is the way I thought about it. Uh, at the beginning of the year, when, uh, when the elders and I were, were talking about the, this, this new year, the two things that I wanted to do was I wanted to, I wanted to stop services here for one Sunday to, to have an Easter service together where the whole church gathers together. Uh, and we met at, at the Herbst Theater, as you guys know, Civic Center. And we celebrated Christ and we invited friends and we pr- it was just such a great time. I'm like, that's not it. I just don't want to do that. I want to break again in the summer, and I want to do a, a mission trip for the whole church. And I want to do that on a Sunday where we shut church down, and we just don't, that day, we, don't, we shut church, the services down, and we actually get to go in the TL and, and, and embody the church, be the church on mission for a Sunday. So that's what we're doing. On August 5th, we, I, I wish that we can gather the church like this, and I can walk you guys all to TL, but that's just, that's just too time-consuming. We just want you to meet there, okay? Meet there at 10 o'clock, August 5th, how we're going to start it off is we're going to gather at the Croc Center, which is the Salvation Army's um, Center there, which is a beautiful building, by the way. You have to, this building is gorgeous. They have a gym there. They have, I mean, it's beautiful. Anyway, so we're meeting there, have worship. Our friend Francis Chan will be delivering that morning's message, just talking about, you know, what, how we're supposed to be living our lives in San Francisco on mission for Christ, getting us encouraged, and then we all go out. And on the back of this flyer are all these different icons. They represent the things that we're doing that day. This has to do with your community group. So what I need you to do, even right now, I'll give you full permission to get your phone out to go onto that website right there and sign up during service. You have my permission, so you do not forget. If you are those forgetful type, they're like, I will forget, I won't remember, do it right now. As you sign up with your community group, you will be designated a spot. If you do not have a community group, just tell us what neighborhood you live in and we'll plug you into one um, for this day. There's things like, uh, there's going to be a basketball camp, there's going to be a dental sort of booth, washing feet, uh, uh, um, we're, we're going to be doing a, a haircutting booth, we're going to be doing a, a block party, we're going to be ministering door-to-door, hand, delivering food, we'll be taking TL residents out of there. Some of these TL residents are shut-ins, they don't leave their apartment. And we can go there and go, could, would you like to go on a walk with us and can we buy you lunch? And you get to walk them outside and walk with them through the TL and sit down with them at McDonald's or whatever and buy them lunch and just hear their story. We're going to be ministering, and this is, this, is the, this is why we're doing this. It has been my burden in this city to be a part of a church, not just the reality, but part of the church in San Francisco that changes the way that San Francisco looks at church, that changes the way San Francisco looks at Jesus. So when you say that you're a Christian, the first thing they don't think of is what you're against, but the first thing they, they think of is the church serves this city. The church does. It loves the city. They spend their time and their resources and their money in the city. That people just don't come in the city going, I'm here to build my portfolio. I'm here to build my resume. I'm here to do my thing and then get out of here. I'll suck everything I can from this city. I'll suck all the nightlife in the city, all the great coffee, food, Napa, Tahoe, all this stuff. I'll suck it all for two years and I'll bail. That is not how we want to be made known. That is not how 
we want people to remember Christianity in San Francisco. If that's the way you live, repent from that way of life. Repent from it and go, God, I'm here for two years. May my life be poured out for the cause of Christ in San Francisco. That's what we want to happen. And the way that's going to happen, and this is more of a catalytic event. It's going to, small beginnings, it'll be our church, my hope, and I've been talking with several other pastors as well. Our hope is that the church in San Francisco is known for this. Maybe there's a day where the church shuts down everything and just goes into the streets and serves the city. There's only 16,000 Christians in San Francisco. Do you know that? 800-something thousand people? The church needs to be known for self-sacrificial service. I remember reading a biography called um, The Streets of Gold, and in it, it talks about the church in London during the plague. And when everyone was leaving London because of the plague, the church was going into London. They were going into London and, and, and serving people until they died, until those people with plague died. And then they themselves would catch the plague and die. And they were asking, why, why is the church going in? Because they said, because we have a hope beyond this, beyond this life. We have a hope beyond this life. So when everyone was leaving, they were going in and serving. That's what we want the church to be known as. And so this is why we're doing this event. So if you, if you, guys, if you guys think that, that that church, this you guys coming in this building is, you know, you have your place where you get really good coffee. You have a place where you have, you have your favorite, you know, place you get pho and favorite place you get like, you know, you know what I'm saying? You're like, you have your different pockets of places. Best sandwich, best coffee, best soup, best this, best that, best, you know, like this, this place has the best dinner, whatever. You have all these, and then you go, this is where I get my spirituality, Sunday morning at, at reality. That's not what this is. That's not what church is. This building is not the church. You and I are the church. Yeah. And we're to live this way in our lives. And this is what Christ calls us to. And so all that to say Please sign up. Don't, that Sunday you're going to be like, well, I'm busy. I don't know if I want to spend all day. Just do it. It'll be like if you've ever been on a missions trip. If you've ever been on a missions trip and you were like, um, man, I wish we can, how do I bring this home? We're like, well, we're going to just do it at home and you won't have to a- ask that question. We'll do this trip and at the end of it you're like, how do, I, how do I do this on Monday? Pretty simple. That's what we're doing. So that's coming up August 5th. Please sign up online there. We only, had, uh, we only have like 160 people signed up right now, and there's like 1,000 that come through this building, so I'm getting nervous. We only have like two weeks away, but I know you'll do the right thing. No, sorry. <laughs> Next, Boston Prayer Tour. Um, we are launching a church in Boston called Reality Boston. It is a reality. We are, it's our sister church, and uh, we are financially obligated to this church. We've, we're supporting them financially. And we're going to help start this church with a prayer tour. Now, if you like this church at all, if you've come here because you really like it, it's, it's probably a, a large part of that is due to the fact that people for about a year before the church started sacrificed their resources, their time, um, and drove up here and walked these streets up and down these hills and prayed. Without pretense, without advertising, without anything, just walking, praying, walking, praying all day long through these streets. Our mantra was you breathe in the city and you breathe out prayer. You breathe out the gospel on the city. Like you pray for it. We did that. And many people came and did that. For over a year, we had like five different trips. And I, and I, and I believe that the success of this church, why this church is really just a, a, a blessed place. I don't know. I, I, love, I love this church. I love coming into this church. I think a large part of that is because people prayed. And I feel, I, and I believe that we have a responsibility to, to, to do that with other churches. 
at other churches that we start to help start them in the same way. And so we will in Boston. As we start this church, we're going to go and we're going to take a team along with Reality Los Angeles and Stockton and Santa Barbara and we're going to go to uh, um, Boston and walk the streets and pray. It's going to be an amazing, fun time. Now, if it sounds like I'm like trying to get you to sign up, it's because it's kind of steep. The price, anyway. The price to go on this trip is $1,800. No, just joking. It's $850. Sounds way cheaper, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I can do that. $850. I do that to my wife all the time, and it works. So, um, $850. That's nothing. You go there, and it it's, uh, um, includes your flight, your hotel, that sort of stuff. And we're going to be starting. going to be at the very, very first um, Reality Boston uh, church service. So, that's going to be really great. So, Pray for that and also be part. And the reason why we want you to sign up soon with your deposit is because we're going to start gathering as a uh, prayer tour team before this event. So we need to start gathering soon. So it's coming up in the next couple months. Next, there's two more things and we'll be done. We'll move on to our teaching. Our space issue. Let's talk about that. Um, We've been at capacity on Sunday mornings and it's only July. Normally we're not at capacity until the end of August. Students are not back yet and people have not settled down from traveling which means, obviously, that we need more space. One option that we had on the table for quite some time, and we prayed extensively about this as a church, you might have been out to the prayer meetings, is that we prayed about the possibility of moving our third service north to another church that would rent out their building to us for a Sunday night service. It would have held more people. We can grow. We had room to do that. After months of prayer, we do not believe at this time we're ready to make this move. As we prayed about it as a church, it became came real clear to us that we would have to treat this move north like a church plant, not simply moving a service. We'd have to put the vision and the resources and the time and the people and the staff toward it like a church plant. It would take, and a lot of you guys' concern as you guys were getting back to us, like, how long will the staff live once we do this? You guys don't seem like you will live that much longer, and the church might implode if, if we do this. And so, because of the resources and the setup and the, all that stuff going forward. At first, I tried to deny this and thought I can rally the staff and the volunteers to do it, like get on the church planner hat again. No, we could do this, guys. Let's get together. Get the, rally the staff, rally volunteers, and then do it. But it became clear to me that to have done that would have been disobedience. The fact is that we do need to plant churches in San Francisco. And we do need to plant churches in San Francisco under the umbrella of Reality San Francisco. And that's the direction that we're moving toward. We want to plant churches. Now, we're probably a little ways from that, maybe a year, maybe two. We need to plant churches, and so we'll move in that direction. But for now, we're not moving any of our services. We're not moving this location. However, we are praying about adding a fourth service until someone drops $3 million in the offering basket so we can buy a building. (laughs) Or you sell your startup for a billion dollars, and then we're set. So we need you to do this. Pray for that. Because I've said this before to you guys. It's really hard for, for us to turn people away. Just say, sorry, there's no room. You can't come to church. So that's really hard for us to do. So we're praying about that move. Um, so pray for that. Pray for church planters. That God would anoint and raise possibly people up from within the church. But also people that are outside of San Francisco being called in to plant churches as well. So pray for that. And lastly... We are close to acquiring a new space. Since no one has dropped that $3 million into our offering basket, um, we have an opportunity at Reality 
our Reality SF offices to acquire the remaining floor of the building on Bryant Street. If you've ever been to our, our, our office, we have uh, an office, and then, and then across the hall has been this vacant space that's been about 5,000 square feet. And so recently, this last month, we acquired 1,000 square feet of that space, and we turned it into a, a room where we had meetings for community group prayer. Uh, we had community prayer night there. We had our CG community group sync meeting there. We, had, we used it for band practice. Um, we even did a product launch event for Not For Sale. So we also expected to use this space as a kids' area and provide childcare for Tuesday nights in order that families can get to community groups. So they can get there, drop off their kids Tuesday night, and head to the com- to community groups, and their kids will be cared for, and they do like a, a Bible program with them and all the other fun stuff. As we grow, we feel the best way to serve the church right now is to acquire the entire floor, an additional 4,000 square feet, and basically turn it into a church minus a sanctuary. So normally if you go to church, there's a sanctuary, a fellowship hall, like a chapel, a kitchen, kids' rooms, classrooms, and offices. We're going to do that in, our, in this Bryant space, everything minus the sanctuary. So we, there's not a space big enough for the sanctuary. So we will have there, we're going to be building a community kitchen. We're going to be building a fellowship hall. We have a little chapel. We have a, we'll have a kids' center where moms could come and have playdates there and Kids could play here and moms could meet there. We have classrooms for people that need counseling or something like that. Or uh, community groups, if you're discipling someone, you can go there. Um, we'll have this fellowship hall. If, we also realize there's not a space where you can have 35 people around one table in San Francisco under $7,000. You know, like you can't, you just can't do that. There's not enough space. And if you did, you have to rent out some really nice restaurant. So we're building that. We're building a, a community kitchen where your community group can go in of 35 people and sit around one table and cook a, a big meal together. Um, we believe in that sort of thing. We believe in that sort of community space. And so um, we, we will be hosting a merry date night there. We'll be hosting cooking classes, community group meals, so on and so forth. I think you guys get the idea. We would also like to utilize this additional space to accommodate our growing staff by adding a large conference room there as well for, and an additional counseling room. So all of that is in the works. Would you please pray for that? Now, if you're asking how does that reflect what does that look like with our budget and what we proposed? Email Stephen at RealitySF and you'll get all of that in the PDF. It'll talk about all these things, where we're at, where we're going, how this affects all things. I'm done. Is that cool? You guys good with that? Okay. Let's move on. If you have a Bible, for the very last time, would you please turn to Genesis chapter 50? We are concluding this book today. If you, um, if you have a physical Bible, you know, extra points in heaven, just saying. No, that's a lie. That's not true. Um, do this. Genesis chapter 50, and then go to Romans chapter 8. Genesis 50 and Romans 8. Actually, and specifically Romans 8, 28. I'll read them. I'll actually read them both right now, and then I'll pray. Genesis 50. Let's start in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. We are your slaves. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I thank you for our time in Genesis. This has been a, an amazing and wonderful book, God. And I pray as we close it that we would, all of us, like Joseph, take our place from that place of trying to become God. And we say together, am I in the place of God? Can I add a single height to my stature, an inch, through worrying, through trying to control my life? Am I in the place of God that, that, that I judge? Am I in the place of God that... Lord, we take ourselves from that place that we often find ourselves, trying to make ourselves the authority, and we submit under your authority. We submit under your leading and your caring. I pray that you would teach us this morning, that you give us ears to hear and give us faith, Lord. I thank you for this church, and I pray that you would teach us together. Anoint me now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, what I want to talk about today is the working of good. How does God work good? Now, we looked at that passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we said even last week that verse can become a bit trite. We can just throw that around. Hey, God works all things together for good. That is, and it could be a very, an abusive statement. Even what happened this last week in Colorado, throwing that verse around could be damaging. It could be so hurtful. God works all things together for good. Are you, wait, wait, time out. Let's just stop. Can we call evil, evil first? Can we call wrongs, wrong? Before we jump to all these things, like, hey, God has this plan. God's, can we just acknowledge evil? That's what Joseph does. That's what's going on in our text. In Genesis, the acknowledgement of evil is happening. Actually, the, the weight of guilt has fallen upon Joseph's brothers. Dad is dead. Jacob is dead. And as Jacob has died, the brothers think, oh, my gosh, now, Joseph is like the Count of Monte Cristo. He's like waiting for his revenge. He's cal- we know he's calculated, right? He's like, tells Pharaoh, hey, so Pharaoh, we have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Those seven years, we need to, a calculation of people giving of their grain. We're going to store it up and we'll divvy it out the seven years. Of- he's a calculated man. The brothers are thinking he's just waiting for the right time to strike us down. And, and dad dying is a perfect time. Dad's dead. That's all gone. Now, I'm going to deal between you and me. And so that's what they think. They start to fear the guilt. They're, they're, actually, they're actually guilty. And they feel guilty and they feel awake. So they send Joseph a letter. They're, they're so afraid of Joseph that they can't even talk to him. Face, they text him. They, they, they send him an email. They're like, listen, I, I can't, we can't talk in person right now. So hey, will you forget? And so they write a letter. When they first appeal to dad, that's the first thing. And we have no record. We have no reason to believe that dad actually said this. But they said he said this. And this is the letter. Here's what it says. We actually have the actual letter, which is kind of cool. Um, the internet has everything. So it says this. So this is the letter they, sold, they sent him. It's, it's twofold. The first part is from dad. And this is what they said. Dear Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Love, dad. And then they write at the end, they all sign it too, and this is how they sign it. And now, 
Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Okay, so dad said brothers, but they said, we're the servants of the God. Same God, man. We worship the same God. We're brothers. We're not like just brothers, but we're brothers, like in God. Love your slaves, your bros. Okay, so, so this is the letter they send him. So how does, first you have to notice, and this is, this is, the, this is how we started. Notice this, full confession of sin. Calling evil, evil. That's what's going on at the very beginning. There are three different words used to describe the sin here. If you try to detach for a second, just saying, hey, God works all things together for good, when Joseph was sold in, in an unjust way, sold into slavery, made a slave in Potiphar's house, and then lied to again, lied about again, and was made, was thrown in prison. If you're standing here and you say, you know what, it's all good, God works it all out for good, that's not what the Bible lets you do. It starts by saying this, that was evil. That was wrong. That was sin. Actually uses three different words. The first one is transgression. Please forgive the transgression. That word is rebellion, crime, a breach in relationship. We've talked extensively about this word here when we've talked about sin. We've said at the very beginning of this church, we're going to talk about sin. We're going to call sin, sin. We, we, we've said, we've done a series on sin and said that sin creates a reality that wasn't there before. It's like, it's like Barah. God creates something out of nothing. Sin creates something out of nothing. You can have a great relationship with two different people and you sin and there's something in the room that wasn't there before you walk in the room and someone does someone else wrong and you're like there's something there what is that it's called sin and that's the first thing there's a breach in relationship the second word they use is sin as in wrongs different word they've done wrong the brothers selling him into slavery was wrong and it was evil they call it right out. It was evil. We've done evil. Dad supposedly said, forgive them because they've done evil to you. Evil, harm, abuse. We are not allowed just to simply say, hey, God works all things together for good. You first, you're first confronted with their sin. This letter, nowhere in this letter is their cruelty treated lightly. This letter exposes the heinous nature of sin. And this confession begins to deal with their guilt. They, they have this heavy guilt that they can't get rid of. It's been there the whole time, and it's eating away at them like guilt does. And finally, when dad dies, they confess their guilt. Up to this point, they've never, they've never said they were guilty. Up to this point, they've never said, to Joseph anyways, they never said, will you forgive us? It's been weighing on them. There's this something that's there, a broken relationship that you can't mend until you confess guilt. Can you confess wrong and say, will you forgive me? And so they finally do. Joseph has forgiven them. Joseph said, no, I've already forgiven. That's why they said, will you forgive us? And he's like, do not fear. He doesn't say, he doesn't say this. He says, hey, don't ask for forgiveness. You're forgiven. He says this, don't fear. He's already forgiven them. He's released them in his heart, but that guilt rela- lays on them. I think this is, I'd be wrong to not take this time to talk about Reconciliation. Sure, when someone sins against you, you're called to forgive. Like Joseph did, I've I've forgiven you. But if you've sinned against someone else, confess your sin. I've wronged you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's what they do. How does Joseph respond to this letter? Well, first he cries. He weeps, it says. Then Joseph says, what he says next is the theological statement of the entire book of Genesis. This holds the whole book together. This statement here answers what happened in Genesis chapter 3. If you've ever read the book of Genesis and and you ask questions like, how can God allow evil in the world? 
Why would he even let evil, why, why, did, why didn't Adam and Eve, just their first sin, God just take out everything, everything's done? Why did God even let the possibility of it? Here's the theological statement that the whole book of Genesis like hangs on. His brothers came and fell before him, which is you're supposed to remind us of the dream that Joseph had at the very beginning, that his brothers would bow before him. Behold, we are your servants. And this is what Joseph said. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You meant evil. What you did was evil, wrong, harm, sin, transgression. What you did was evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Notice, first, what Joseph calls good. He says that God meant all that happened to him for good. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now listen, I don't know if you were here for the last year in Genesis. If you are, there's some, there should be a word that like, oh, wait, wait, wait. How did Genesis start? God said it. It was, and it was good. God said it. And it was, and it was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. The book of Genesis starts with God creating all things good, and it ends with God going, yeah, evil? Guess what I can do with evil? Evil doesn't win. In the end, evil doesn't win. The whole book of Genesis is this just anti, every, the, the unraveling of the shalom of God. Everything's falling apart from Genesis 3 onwards. Everything is. God has destroyed the earth already, and he's destroyed, a, he's destroyed two towns, Sodom and Gomorrah. Just unraveling of, of the shalom of God. And he calls a family, and that family sins. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob sins. Jacob's sons sin. Then it ends with Jacob's son, Joseph. And the way it ends is beautiful. Because as one writer says, the end goes back to the beginning. And this is how it began. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, this is what the serpent saying to Adam and Eve, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of this one particular tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which is not really what he said, but whatever, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, listen, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was, there's that word again, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be desired, same word good, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, up to this point, the narrative, has got, the narrative God has provided what is good for humanity. He's provided everything. Beautiful, full, functioning world. He's provided a companion for Adam, a garden, a perfect job, the cultural mandate to build with God. It was all good. Genesis 1 and 2, there's this phrase used over and over again. God did it, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And God created everything good, the sky, the light, the night, the day, dry ground, animals, mammals, birds, man, woman. It was very good. Then God put man and woman in charge of all the good that he created. Adam and Eve were participants and had the privilege of enjoying the good story of God. 
Adam and Eve had all the good they would ever have needed, but they wanted more. Through the temptation of the serpent, they wanted to be like God. The centerpiece of Genesis up to chapter 3 and the centerpiece of the temptation story is around this question of good. And the narrative clue to the story is the woman assuming the role of knowing the good before she ate the fruit. And this is why it says, when she took of the fruit and she saw that it was good for food. Who saw that it was good up to that point? God. And God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. And now Eve is taking, usurping the role of God going, I saw it and it's good and I will eat. And Adam and Eve ate and they fell. That was her last thoughts before the fall. I know it's good. She saw that it was good. This is, what, this is what this means. This is what they thought. We can become good. We can know what's good for our lives apart from God. We can know good from evil apart from God. We will decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong apart from God. We can become our own moral authority. We can stand in the place of God. What's implicit and what the serpent says to Eve is this. This is basically what's implicit in, 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 in the, with the serpent's conversation with Eve. He says this, would you like to be in the place of God? That's what he says. Would you, Adam and Eve, would you like to be in the place of God? God, God, God didn't say that. God knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him. Do you want to be in his place? Eat it. She said, it is good. And then she eats See, Genesis begins by telling us about a primeval couple who tried to become like God and ends by telling us about a man who denied he was in God's place. Joseph stood before his brother and said, am I in the place of God? A perfect ending to the book of Genesis. It started with Adam and Eve going, we're in the place of God. Ends with a man submitted to the will of God through evil, through injustice, through disharmony. To a family that's broken, he says, am I going to usurp the place of God? Adam and Eve attempted to wipe out the dividing line between humanity and deity, but Joseph refuses to cross that line. And this question of good, Adam and Eve tried to make good out of a perfect situation and destroyed everything. Joseph entrusted the good to God who causes all things to work together for good. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment. Joseph had a destructive and flawed environment. You know what the end of Genesis comes down to? You know what the whole book comes down to? From Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Genesis chapter 50, you know what it's all about? It's about trust. Do you trust God? And let me give you what trust looks like in the clearest way possible. Maybe you should write this down. Never put yourself in the place of God. Never put yourself in the place of God. The tree that was there in the midst of the garden was basically just, it, it, all it said was this, do you trust me? That's it. That's all the tree was. We can't say, well, in the tree there was this magical fruit juice and the fruit juice made their, like the synapses in their brain. I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. But anyway, so like <laughs> things going on in their head to be smart and they become like God. That's, it was a magic tree. If we could just get back to that tree. No, no. You know what that tree just represented? It was just a tree. I don't know what kind of fruit, maybe pomegranate, maybe an apple. Maybe a fig, I don't know, something. And all that tree represented was this, trust, that's it. That's all the tree represented. Do you trust God? And they walked up, they're like, no, we don't. We don't trust that God really meant that. 
We don't trust that God can provide all the good. We don't trust. Never put yourself in the place of God. And you might be thinking, well, well I, don't, I don't run the universe. How can I put myself in the place of God? Well, you try to run your universe. That's the point. And this is why you worry. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, why do you worry about what you eat, your clothes, what you wear, tomorrow? Why do you worry about it? I mean, can you add an inch to your height? Can you make any of your hairs grow or even stay in place? No. You know you can't. I can't. Anyway. Jesus says, only God knows what you truly need, and he's the only one with the power to give you what you really need. You need to trust. See, I've said this before because I've, I've confessed to you guys that I, this is one of my flaws. I, I worry a lot, and I have a lot of anxiety that I need to confess and submit to God continually. But this is what worry looks like. Worry comes from when you are sure, when you are absolutely sure, you know exactly what has to happen in your life for your life to be good. When you know, you're like, okay, this is how tomorrow needs to go for my life to be good. This is how my job needs to go for my life to be good. This is how my career, this is how my family, this is how, my, this is how I'm going to get married. This is how I'm going to marry that perfect person. It has to go like this. And we have that in our head and we're afraid that God's not going to get it right. That's worry. We're like, okay, I know what I have to do. I know who I have to marry and the kind of person I need to marry. And God, I don't really know if you can get that one right. So I'm going to worry about it. And I'm going to fill my life with worry. And I'm going to stay up all night going, well, I have to say this. And they're going to say this. And then I'm going to say that. And then when they say that, oh, it's on. That's worry. Because you're like, God, you're not going to get this right. So I'm going to have to get in my mental space here and start worrying. What am I going to wear tomorrow? I don't know. Like, well, God, I don't, God, I don't probably provide for like just simple food stuff. So I need to, okay, how am I going to make my, my career path go the way I want? Because I don't really trust if God's going to get it right. That's worry. See, if I was to tell you the day, if I was Joseph, and I was in prison, and I was interpreting those, the butler and the baker's dream, remember that? I'm like, butler, dude, it turns out great for you. You're going to be exalted to your same position. Baker, not so much. <laughs> you're going to die. Anyway, so butler, since you're going to make it, listen, tell Pharaoh everything about me that I interpreted. You know what I would have done that night when, when the, the butler was, was back to his place next to Pharaoh? I would have been worrying that whole night. I would have been playing the conversation of Pharaoh and the butler in my head. I would have been like, okay, he better say exactly what I told him. Exactly what I said. I'm like, I would have been like, okay, listen, butler, write this down. You're going to forget this. Say this and then this. Because I, I have this, this weird way of like trying to control every situation. Get it just right. And then after the, the night went through and I didn't hear from anyone, and then a week, in a month, I would have lost all hope. Joseph waited two years in complete trust in God. So when he stood before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes, I heard you interpret dreams. He goes, not in me. It's in God. We need to trust. The best thing to do with worry, this is going to sound a little strange. The best thing to do with worry is to become agnostic when it comes to your future, but Christian when it comes to your hope. Now, that sounds weird. You're like, agnostic? My pastor told me to be agnostic. Okay, listen. I just don't want you to forget this, okay? Agnostic when it comes to your future and Christian when it comes to your hope. What I mean by that is this. You may think you have a great plan for your future, 
and it seems good, and it seems like everything will work out like this if it happens the way I want it to. But you need to do this. You need to submit that to God and go, I don't know what's best. I don't know that getting that career or losing that career is best. I don't know the future. I'll act and react in a good and right way, but I don't know the outcome. And I trust the outcome to you, so I don't know. When it comes to our hope, we're Christian. And that Romans 8.28 is our hope. That no matter what happens to us, whether good or bad, God is working everything out for the good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. What does all things even mean? What does that mean? All, God works all things together? What does that even mean? Does that mean my sufferings? Does it mean evil? Does it mean good things that happen, bad things that happen? Does it mean injustice? The answer is yes. Now, what's not clear in this translation at all is who's doing the working. It looks like all things are working, doesn't it? And that's why we say, hey, guys, it'll all work out in the end. Things will work out. That's not what this means. This translation doesn't show that, but that's not what this text originally means. It, it means this. God will work out all things. See, that's optimism to think, hey, things will work out. Things won't work out. The things in your life aren't going, hey, let's work to work things out. No. Normally things are going, how do we destroy everything? But God is working things, all things out. You see? God is doing that. Not things. Things aren't doing that. God is. So we say God works all things together. What does it mean by work? It means that God who's created everything and said it was good, is working everything that happens in our lives for good. But let me talk about this word good for a second. I don't want you to think that the things that happen to your life are good. Some of them are not. The things that happen in our lives are not always good. We as Christian people reserve the right to call things wicked and wrong and sin. We can say that. We don't look at tragic events and go, all good. No, no, no. We say evil, wickedness, sin. We have, we have the right to say that because we believe in evil. We believe that sin is operative in this world. We're not saying that all things are good. That's not what's going on here. Actually, implicit in this, thing, in this text is that bad things will happen. Hey, God works all things together for good. You wouldn't have to say that if it was all good all the time. What's implicit is that things are not good sometimes. Things are bad. Genesis makes it clear that what Joseph's brothers did to him were, were evil. They confess that. Joseph acknowledges that. It was not good. Injustice is not good. Abuse is not good. Rape is not good. Murder is not good. Betrayal is not good. Divorce is not good. Sometimes life and circumstances will be against you. Sometimes your own sin nature will be against you. But here's the promise of Romans 8.28. The promise is this. All things may be against you, but never with final success. All things will be against you. Evil will come upon you. Evil will happen in this world. But that doesn't have the last word. Evil does not have the last word. That's the hope of the Christian. Evil does not have the last word. Genesis 3 might have happened, 
But it's not the end. Where's the end of Genesis? Chapter 50, God works all things together for good. What's the end of the Bible? Same exact thing. This is why Spurgeon said wonderfully, because he's a wonderful wordsmith, he said, he who said all things work together will soon prove to you that there is harmony in the most discordant parts of your life. You shall find when your biography is written that the black page did, not har- did but harmonize with the bright one, that the dark and cloudy day was but a glorious foil to set forth the brighter noontide of your joy. When your biography is written, it'll make sense. When you stand before God, you will say, as Joseph said, all things work together for good. That's how Genesis ends, with God continuing through sin, death, rebellion, and justice to bring about good. The good of God did not end in Genesis chapter, chapter 3. The good of God continued until Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph said, God turns all this for good. How can, we make, how can we take God's promise of goodness to the bank in the darkest times of our lives? I think Paul, and this is where we're closed, Paul shows us in Romans chapter 8. Paul says that, that, that the goodness of God working its way out, the reason why God is committed to working all things together for our good is because he loves us. His love for us is what keeps the goodness of God working itself out in our lives, even through evil. The, the unchangeability of God's purpose in our life is based and due to the utter steadfastness of God's love. Let me show you how this works. Romans 8, turn there again with me. Verse 31. So you read verse 28. God works all things together for good. How, how does that happen? You may be asking yourself that question as you're reading this text. If you get down to verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? What shall be against us? Evil, injustice, wrong? No, they will not be against us. God will use them for good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's all things again. All things is a great, maybe even a great sermon title. I don't know. All things. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's going to take, what's going to come between us and the love of God? Okay, so will tribulation, will, will a difficult time in my life pull me away from the love of God? Will distress, me being worried and distressed over my, even my own sin? No. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? What will separate us from God's love? Nothing will. This is why God works all things together for good. This is why you could bank on that. Because nothing that comes into the life of a follower of God, nothing at all will separate us from the love of God. He says in verse 37, no. And all these things, all these things, Nakedness, danger, sword, distress, tribulation, persecution, famine. And all these things, we are more than conquerors. You know what that, that term more than conquerors means? It's not the fact that you just simply made it through this event, but those things are used as your servants. That's what being a more than a conqueror. Not that I just beat uh, uh, persecution. Not that I just beat it, but they were my servants pulling me more towards Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. Not only were these things in my life, like I, I was victorious over them, but they're actually now serving me. That's what more than a conqueror means. 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate you from God's love or his relentless pursuit to bring about good in the midst of evil. That's what God does. And so we have the responsibility and the, I guess, the, 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 the privilege of saying that's evil, that's wrong. And then be filled with the hope that evil doesn't have the last word. And the reason why this is all possible, because the love of God that is shown in Christ, who it says of the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That we can know right now, if you're like, well, how, how do I know that God loves me? Is that God demonstrated in his own love for us. That even while you were a sinner and rebellious and did not want to have anything to do with God, Christ died for you. Put your faith in the relentless grace, the solid love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this wonderful book of Genesis. And I pray that as we tied up this book, I pray, God, we would see your goodness. We see that evil tried to prevail in chapter 3, but it did not have the final word in chapter 50. And it will not still. We trust and we hope in a God who works all things together for good. I pray that you would fill this church with that sort of hope, that sort of joy. If we need that, that hope right now, we would turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.